0: self-proclaimed pelvic health nerd right here. Yes, I am, and I am not afraid to admit it. Today, we get a little bit geeky. I hope you can hang with me. We are going to go into a particularly overlooked and misunderstood diagnoses of the pelvic floor. It's been rebranded, renamed, and guess what? Pelvic floor therapy have evidence grade A for serving these clients. How fantastic is that? New and seasoned OTs are finding their calling in pelvic health. After all, what's more ADL than sex, peeing, and poop? But here's the question. What does it take to become a successful, fulfilled, and thriving OT in pelvic health? How do you go from beginner to seasoned and everything in between? Those are the questions, and this podcast will give you the answers. We are inspired OTs. We are out-of-the-box OTs. We are pelvic health OTs. I'm your host, Lindsay Vestal, and welcome to the OTs in Pelvic Health podcast. Let's get geeky today on the podcast and do a diagnosis dive about interstitial cystitis. Yes, it's a mouthful, so we're gonna call it IC for short. So much easier to say. So IC is defined as pain in the bladder that is persistent enough that it was traditionally thought to be a persistent infection, right? And cystitis is a term for inflammation of the bladder lining, which the bladder lining is called the interstitium. Now, IC's name has gotten a facelift, thank goodness. <laughs> it's called bladder pain syndrome or painful bladder syndrome, and it's rarely an infection. Researchers have shown that at least 80% of clients with painful bladder syndrome have pelvic floor involvement in their condition, okay? Now this should get your ears kind of listening because that means we have a major role with anyone experiencing this. There are three things that most people who experience it have in common. Those three things are pelvic pain with pressure in the bladder or around the pelvis greater than six months. So this means in the groin, in the anus, in the perineum. Number two, Pain gets worse when the bladder fills and feels better when it's empty. And last, they have persistent urge or increased urinary frequency. So when did we start calling it bladder pain syndrome or painful bladder syndrome? Well, believe it or not, in 2019, we transitioned from calling it IC to bladder pain syndrome. That's the common name for it here in Europe. But it's usually called Painful Bladder Syndrome in the USA. Now it's still a diagnosis, IC itself is still a diagnosis, but it's reserved for people who have what is called Hunter lesions, which by the way are very difficult to find. And we even find Hunter lesions in asymptomatic populations. Okay, That should get the wheels turning. So to find Hunter's lesions, the doctor will perform a cystoscopy. That's another mouthful, <laughs> cystoscopy. Many of our clients that have symptoms that we associate with IC are actually clients with chronic pelvic pain conditions that have bladder symptoms. And it's actually not a bladder pathology at all in most cases, except for maybe with clients who have Hunter lesions then they will need bladder center treatment. Otherwise, a whole person, a whole OT approach is exactly what these clients need. According to AUA urology guidelines, pelvic floor therapy received evidence grade A for these clients, and these clients do best with a non-evasive, non-pharmaceutical, non-procedural approach. So in fact, let me say it again, pelvic floor therapy is the only treatment in the AUA guidelines with an evidence of grade A. Our clients need us. So let's circle back around to what our clients actually report to us. Right? Because we're often the people who are spending most time with them, the most time with them, and we're kind of the one putting together a lot of different pieces that they get from the various specialists they've been to. So, the two things we hear the most common are a strong need to get to that bathroom, right? And then they'll talk to us about pain, pain at some point in their day, in their pelvis, in their pelvic region, right? usually associated with urination, but doesn't have to be. These are the two most common hallmarks, but we'll also hear other reports because the pelvic floor is connected, right, to to all of our major functions down there. So we'll hear painful intimacy. We'll feel, they describe feeling pressure, uh, which could be associated with pelvic organ prolapse. And this actually affects between one and four million people who identify as men and between 3 million and 8 million people who identify as women in the United States. This is actually a, big, a bigger group of clients than you think. And one of the biggest myths of interstitial cystitis is that it's exclusively a bladder condition. This, my friends, is where the beauty of a holistic thinking OT mine comes into play. Now, how many of you have had a client that either has painful bladder syndrome or suspected they had it? Here's the thing. It's often a diagnosis of exclusion. And just like with so many other diagnoses that our clients receive, it's an average of seven years before this diagnosis is given. What happens in those seven years? So many things in the pelvic floor, right? They start to probably have a reactionary response of gripping or tightening their pelvic floor out of anticipation of pain. And this can lead to so many other things that we see in the pelvic floor and how that overactive pelvic floor can get in the way with so many other functions that the pelvic floor have. I think it's important to be aware of the common tests that our clients will have Potentially before they came to see us or concurrently while we're seeing them. So we have urodynamics, we have the cystoscopy, we have hydrodistension with the cystoscopy, pelvic imaging, urine analysis, and our clients are often working with a urologist while seeing us as bladder cancer needs to be ruled, o- needs to be ruled out. And this is often done through that cystoscopy. A bladder biopsy helps to identify if inflammatory processes are at play. Some of the treatment protocols you will often see are anti-neuropathic drugs, such as gabapentine, which changes nervous system function around nociception. Now, nociception is our our threat detection system. So you can see why if we sort of quiet or soften that detection system, the nervous system starts to calm down and we start to see that inflammatory process and even that overactive pelvic floor start to relax a little bit. Our pelvic floor is so intimately connected with our nervous system. Another treatment protocol you may have heard of is Elmeron. Now, this is the only FDA-approved oral medicine for I.C or painful bladder syndrome, but update, the AUA now warns us about Elmiron and eye damage. They now have enough evidence and this should not be being subscribed and this should not be being given to our clients any longer. It has been shown to demonstrate risk of retinal damage dose dependent. And they've also said that Elmiron is no better than a placebo. Long-term oral antibiotics in absence of infection is also not recommended. These are all things that we can talk with our clients about and encourage them to speak with their practitioner about, and we're ensuring that their urologist or their practitioner is up to date with the latest and the greatest. We as pelvic floor therapists are in the behavioral and non-pharmaceutical treatment category. You guys, this is such a powerful category, such an OT category. We can provide education around normal bladder function, education around benefits benefits and risk of treatment, stress management techniques, self-care practices, and behavioral modifications. And guess what else? We have the time, the knowledge about the musculoskeletal system, knowledge around the nervous system. We have neuromuscular expertise, behavioral expertise. We know about stress management and sleep hygiene, diet and nutrition. All of this supports that whole person. Now, speaking of diet and nutrition, some of you may have heard that a special diet is a way to find relief with painful bladder syndrome. There is no evidence that avoiding things like tomatoes or the other foods on that list have any benefit for clients despite it being labeled as an IC diet. The gold standard is actually just an elimination diet. To help figure out if the individual has specific food triggers as educators in the field we need to use the right language and not refer to one broad cookie cutter approach that is supposedly good for all ic clients right we know it's the ot way to individualize it for the client through the use of an elimination diet Is a referral to a registered dietitian necessary as a multidisciplinary practitioner? I mean, you all know this about me. I am a huge fan of creating a team if it's what's needed for the client. We do not need to own the stress of being the one and only person to help guide our clients. Pelvic floor concerns are multifactorial and a multidisciplinary approach serves our clients the best. We can start guiding our clients to help begin the process to see if we actually need to make an appropriate referral. And so often, a simple elimination diet that we can talk with them about can actually be enough to see if they need another referring party involved, right? Maybe someone who can really hone in on the details of what their specific food triggers are, especially if we don't have that expertise. Another common intervention is bladder installations. Now this is when a small catheter is inserted into the bladder. It typically doesn't hurt. It's done as an outpatient procedure and the client is giving numbing gel. Bladder installations are a collection of medications that basically coat the bladder lining like lipstick, making sure that the urine doesn't get through to cause pain. They pour fluid into the bladder and then they pee it out. The meds bind to the bladder lining. Now this can be very effective for many of our clients. It takes about ah, 10 or so sessions and they often add pain relief into the mixture that they put inside the bladder. You'll often hear our clients talk about Botox injections into the pelvic floor. If you have a centrally driven pelvic floor tension state, right, and they have kind of like a parasympathetic driven tension, this can be a really good option. They basically put Botox into the urethra bilaterally at the entrance to help open up the urethra. Now, this brings us to the Bladder Diary, a very effective educational tool. Now, I've had a previous episode all about bladder diaries and how we can use them, so please make sure to go back and listen to that episode if you want to learn more about this very, very amazing tool. Now, bladder diaries, they can give us so much information, right? I like ones that include an urgency score so that we know at what volume they are getting that sensation. So basically, what level of sensory input do they have to receive the sensation? So maybe at score four, which is like 200 milliliters, right? So this is good information to know. The urgency score should run from zero to four and gives us insight as to the sensory load and how their brain is actually feeling and therefore how their system is responding. It reduces stretch perception basically so ideally we want to keep them below that level the bladder diary is optimal at two to four days long this would include you know their weekday and their weekend the diary also includes things like urgency scores and time criteria so i'm going to get more specific about that time criteria would be zero right so the client can hold indefinitely one would be they can hold for about an hour two would be they could hold for 30 minutes, three, they can hold for 15, and zero, they cannot hold at all. Sensation scores are also between zero and four. For an urge at zero, this would be less than 150 milliliters. Urge one would be between 150 and 250 mils. Urge two would be 250 to 350 milliliters. Urge three would be 350 to 450 milliliters. Urge four would be greater than 450 milliliters, which would be equivalent to a authentic urge. Now, of course, we're looking at things like input as well. So how much did they drink? What types of beverages did they drink, et cetera. In terms of total output, our clients should be registering something greater than 1300 milliliters. This output signifies normal hydration, according to Armstrong in 2016. So you can see how much the urgency score can tell us. If they pass a small volume with a larger degree of urgency, there could be something pressing on the bladder to make the volume smaller, like a prolapse, a fibroid, or even a tumor. Or it could simply be poor compliance and the bladder simply doesn't want to expand. Then, if appropriate, we can move to bladder retraining, which is prescribed time intervals to go to the toilet, or even urge suppression techniques. So the bladder diary tells us how the client is feeling, how often they went, and whether it was out of habit or was it sensation. Some outcome measures that I love to use with these clients are the ICSI, which is the IC symptom index, the bladder pain IC score, which is the BPICSS, the PUF, which is the Pelvic Pain and Urinary Frequency Patient Symptom Scale. I love using Leichhardt scales with a zero to 10 urgency bladder pain or overall pain, the GUPI, Genito-Urinary pain index, And for people who identify as men, I've got a whole slew of other inventories that I'm going to link to, the ones I've already mentioned, uh, and these other ones in the notes of this podcast. So let's talk a little bit more about treatment now. There are two main areas, right? We can either look at it from a peripheral driver standpoint or a central driver, When it's a central driver, there are structural changes in the brain that modulate the output of the experience for bladder pain syndrome. I think it's really important that we don't just troubleshoot the bladder, right? We're treating the motor, the sensory, the autonomic, the limbic. We are treating the whole person. So I recently read a paper that discusses the use of brain scans of people who have BPS. And they were looking at the connectedness of the brain, you know, how different areas of the brain work together. And they discussed how cognitive flexibility is a predictor of of our clients getting better faster. What does this actually mean? It means having more options for how we do things. I love this. I lit up when I got to this part in the paper. It was one of the reasons I was so drawn to Lauren O'Han's Restore Your Core Teacher Training program. I have a link in the show notes for you to check out that program if it resonates with you. Now, the brain has a certain way of organizing and responding to threat. You will often see the same pattern with the same outcome. But if we encourage novel movements, feelings, new experiences that feel good, we start to see curiosity about other novel movements and other novel experiences. Speaking of novel, here's one to help clients pick goals. Sandy Hilton of Entropy PT uses cards to help her clients pick goals. An OTI mentor recently said that you can buy her cards on Sandy's website. I will also link to that in the show notes. Now these can be particularly useful when a client is having trouble seeing goals or next steps to get there. So a quick example of these cards are, you may be seeing a picture of a pizza, right? Now this picture could conjure up images of, I don't know, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? It could be a desire to cook. It could be, could I stand long enough to cook? That's my goal. I want to cook. I want to be able to stand long enough to cook. Maybe someone else might think about, I want to be able to sit with my family to eat. Or yet another one might say, I want to take a trip to Naples, Italy. I want to learn how to make this pizza from the masters. Basically, you simply show them the picture and you see what inspires them, what goals can be created by looking at this image i love that and i'm so big into visualizations with certain clients for example can they imagine going to the toilet without pain the more experiences you give the brain of good experiences possible experiences the more experience of positive outcomes is possible And we don't always jump to negative possibilities right that's what we want to try to change we're helping them to create cognitive flexibility and we have research that shows we get better when we're capable of this now sensory integration is great here giving them a new input while they're doing something else changing the association smells are great here even sounds we can also help to change the vagal input by stimulating the vagus nerve through mindfulness, deep breathing, square breathing, where there's a longer exhale. We can help them develop a stretching regimen, an external self-massage that's focused on the fascia, perhaps a foam roller, a, you know, deep breathing protocol, internal trigger point release, voila, whatever you think your client may need. I really hope that you enjoyed this particular podcast where we got a little geeky, but you stuck with me and I'm so grateful for that. Thanks for listening to another episode of OTs and Pelvic Health. If you haven't already, hop onto Facebook and join my group, OTs for Pelvic Health, where we have thousands of OTs at all stages of their pelvic health career journey. This is such an incredibly supportive community where I go live each and every week. If you love this episode, please take a screenshot of this episode on your phone and post it to IG, Facebook, wherever you post your stuff, and be sure to tag me and let me know why you like this episode. This will help me to create in the future what you want to hear more of. Thanks again for listening to the OTs and Pelvic Health Podcast.